The capsule was shaking, rattling, swaying wildly as it streaked down through the atmosphere. Inside, the heat was rising, sweat building up inside John Glenn's spacesuit. Outside the window, a curtain of flame obscured his view, bits of flaming metal flying past at intervals. He was on his own. All he could do was hold on and hope that the ground controllers had been correct in leaving the retropack attached to the capsule for re-entry. It was unorthodox, to say the least, but there were concerns that any other decision would see the capsule's heat shield fall out of place and leave the entire spacecraft to burn into char in the upper atmosphere. He couldn't even speak with anyone on the ground now that his radio was rendered useless by the cloak of ionized particles streaming past the capsule. The metal pieces worried him. Were they fragments of the heat shield? Was it coming apart? Surely the retropack would have burned away by now. Perhaps the heat shield was jarring out of place, disintegrating all the while. If that were the case, then Friendship 7 and the astronaut it carried would only reach the ocean as ash and wreckage. Welcome to Episode 13 of Frontier of Infinity, Fireflies and Fireballs. Last time, we followed along as the Atlas launch vehicle went through its final flight qualifications that would allow it to be used on a manned mission. After the successful launch of the chimpanzee Enos, the Atlas was officially given the green light to carry a human and John Glenn was scheduled to embark on America's first orbital flight on the 16th of January. In this episode, John Glenn takes to space aboard Friendship 7. Thus far, Project Mercury had sent two astronauts into space, Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom, who both flew atop Mercury-Redstone rockets on suborbital ballistic trajectories. Launching a human into orbit, however, was an entirely different beast. It was a much more complicated and hazardous mission. The capsule would have to fly at roughly 28,000 kilometers per hour to achieve an orbit. That's greater than 16,000 miles per hour and is 10 times faster than the Mercury-Redstone flights. An orbital mission would also have a much longer duration playing out over the course of hours rather than minutes, and recovering the capsule could prove a good deal more difficult, as there was a much wider area over which the capsule could descend. And that's provided nothing went wrong on re-entry. But NASA and their contractors had been preparing for months to pull off just such a stunt. If the Soviets could do it, so could they and it seemed that the pieces had finally come together to place an American in orbit. Following the successful flight of Enos, the press were eager to learn who the first American in orbit would be. NASA had known for quite some time, but as they had done with their first manned launch, they had kept the pilot's identity a secret from the public. 
At this point, though, the announcement was made publicly that John Glenn would make the flight. Scott Carpenter would be his alternate, and then the next mission would be flown by Deke Slayton, who would be followed by Wally Schirra. Excitement started to build. But come the 3rd of January, the flight had to be postponed to the 23rd, due to some technical problems with the rocket's fuel tanks. It would not be the last delay to plague the mission. All the while, though, John Glenn and Scott Carpenter were hard at work training. NASA training directive dictated that the pilot begin a comprehensive study of the capsule's instruments and controls 81 days before launch. This was necessary because each Mercury capsule was slightly different. They were not turned out on a factory floor as perfect clones. Each one had its own little quirks and intricacies, which differed not only from the other models, but also from the simulators the astronauts used. John Glenn's Friendship 7 featured several notable differences from Shepard and Grissom's capsules. Perhaps the most pronounced of these was the use of an ablative heat shield rather than a heatsink model. The heatsink shields had performed perfectly well on the two Mercury Redstone flights but they would be insufficient to protect a capsule descending from an orbital flight, as the capsule would be moving much faster, and thus would encounter more heat and pressure. At 72 days before launch, the astronauts were to spend at least three hours per day in the simulator running rehearsals for the mission to come. But all the while, the controllers in charge of the simulation would start to throw the astronaut curveballs in the form of crisis scenarios. Suddenly, the batteries on the capsule might go dead, or a thruster would malfunction. It required the astronauts to stay light on their feet and cool under pressure, while simultaneously allowing them to practice how to respond in various dangerous situations. Leading up to his orbital flight, Glenn flew the mission 70 times in the simulator and faced 189 system errors. One month out from the launch, the dress rehearsals began. During this process, the pre-flight procedure would begin from the point the astronaut woke up. They would be roused early, eat breakfast, undergo their medical exam, suit up, and ride to the launch pad where they'd mount the rocket. A week later, the process would be repeated, but this time, the gantry would be retracted. Then, the following week, the gantry would be retracted, and the countdown would run all the way to zero. And finally, the next week, the launch would go through for real. While the astronauts were training, so too were the recovery and tracking teams. They had to remain just as sharp as the space jockeys, as their role was every bit as critical as those of the pilot. Most of the personnel in the ground stations were largely inexperienced, many of them having never served outside of the United States before. But there was nevertheless a real chance that they would have to make very important decisions throughout the duration of the flight. Some of these stations had full command and control authority over the spacecraft, and could issue orders to the capsule if necessary. In the case of a crisis, a 20-something-year-old operator in a far-flung tracking station might prove to be an astronaut's only hope for survival. The personnel were ready, but bad weather scrapped the 23 January launch, 
and then the 30th of January saw another delay. Some fuel had been found between the fuel and oxidizer tanks, which would take some time to correct, while the tracking and recovery teams were forced to sit tight all around the world and wait. The launch did not occur until February 20th, 1962, when a few other problems necessitated further delays on the launch pad. A faulty bolt had to be replaced on the capsule's hatch, and then a momentary power loss at the Bermuda tracking station took some time to correct. But come 9.47, the Atlas rocket carrying Friendship 7 fired its engines and started towards space. Right before liftoff, Scott Carpenter, who was serving as Capsule Communicator, or CAPCOM, called over the radio, Godspeed, John Glenn. The rocket rose nicely, and as had become standard, the ride grew rough as the rocket passed through the region of maximum dynamic pressure, or MAX-Q, before evening out. An automatic guidance system manufactured by General Electric locked onto a radio transponder on the rocket and kept it on course as it burned for orbit. Two minutes and 14 seconds after launch, the two booster engines on the Atlas cut off and were jettisoned. The rocket's main engine, known as a sustainer, continued to carry the rocket upward until it too cut off at five minutes and one second after liftoff. The capsule's speed at the end of the burn was one and a quarter miles per hour lower than planned, about two kilometers per hour, but that wasn't a serious concern. Calculations conducted on the ground confirmed that Friendship 7's trajectory would be stable well beyond the planned three orbits. The call came over the radio that Glenn was, quote, good for seven orbits. He was actually good for many more than that, but this led to a common misconception in the press that Glenn was supposed to complete seven orbits. Glenn was shrouded in silky black, the pale earth looming below. He had achieved a stable orbit and was on his way. It was estimated that it would take him roughly 88 minutes to circle the globe once. Glenn flipped the capsule around as was usual, where he was able to see the spent rocket behind him. He tracked it for about eight minutes, estimating its distance from the capsule all the while. Readings on the ground revealed that his estimations were highly accurate. A good sign as the ability to estimate the distances between objects in space would be a critical requirement for a future orbital rendezvous. The first leg of the journey was quite smooth. As he soared over the Indian Ocean, he became the first American ever to witness the sunset from orbit. Peering out of the window, he reported to the ground, quote, This moment of twilight is simply beautiful. The sky in space is very black, with a thin band of blue along the horizon. The sun went down fast, but not quite as quickly as I expected. For five or six minutes, there was a slow but continuous reduction in light intensity, and brilliant orange and blue layers spread out at 45 to 60 degrees to either side of the sun, tapering gradually toward the horizon. End quote. On the night side of the Earth, he spotted landmarks and weather formations, witnessing the distant chaos of a thunderstorm as veins of lightning fanned out in the clouds and lit up the sky like flashbulbs. 
He tried to spot a flare fired from a ship down below as well, but the weather prevented him from making it out. Up above, he could see the stars, shining with a vast ebullience that simply wasn't possible under the Earth's atmosphere. As he passed over Australia, he had a pleasant conversation with Gordon Cooper, before he prepared the periscope to observe the sunrise. Starting as just a scintillating crescent, the sun shortly exploded over the horizon, bursting with warm colors like a luminescent diamond in a ring. As Glenn was watching this miraculous natural display, he noticed something peculiar. His capsule was suddenly surrounded by tiny lighted flecks. At first, he thought the capsule had begun to tumble, and what he was seeing flit slowly past the spacecraft were the stars above. But he quickly realized that this was not the case at all. The strange little motes shone brilliantly, drifting leisurely past. Glenn reported, quote, I am in the middle of a mass of very small particles that are lit up as if they're luminescent. They're a bright yellowish-green, about the size and intensity of a firefly on a real dark night. End quote. As the capsule emerged into stronger sunlight, the entire swarm vanished. It wouldn't be until a later orbital flight that the true identity of the fireflies would be revealed. But for now, they flew alongside Glenn's spacecraft like a legion of pixies, his very own cosmic escort. It was shortly after this encounter that the first major problem of the flight began to manifest. There was an issue in the attitude control system. The capsule began drifting to the right, and the yaw thruster that should have automatically fired to compensate didn't. This wasn't a terrible issue on its own. Glenn was able to switch to the proportional manual control mode and personally correct for the drift. But the problem continued to re-emerge. Glenn cycled through the various control modes, trying to find the one that would allow him to correct the persistent drift at the lowest fuel consumption. But about 20 minutes later, when the capsule was over Texas, the thruster began to work again. Glenn switched back to automatic control, but then the opposite thruster began to exhibit the same problem. Glenn knew he couldn't trust the automatic system any longer he would have to actively pilot the spacecraft for the rest of the mission. He locked in the fly-by-wire control system, which he had determined to be the most fuel-efficient, and made manual corrections throughout the rest of the flight. This was a similar problem to the one that had forced mission control to bring Enos back down to Earth early. But since the astronaut on this flight was a highly experienced pilot rather than a chimp, the mission was able to continue proof that an astronaut was actually a boon to have on board, rather than a mere liability. Meanwhile, on the ground, a far more dire situation was beginning to become apparent. It began with an anomalous reading from Segment 51, which was a cluster of sensors responsible for keeping tabs on the capsule's landing system. They were reporting that the heat shield had come loose, it was no longer properly mated to the capsule. Obviously, if the heat shield were to detach or improperly bind to the capsule during re-entry, the results would be devastating. The capsule would burn up, and the pilot would immolate. 
The engineers in ground control immediately set to work trying to find a solution for the problem. Of course, there was no way to definitively determine what had gone wrong, if anything had at all. But it appeared to the ground team that the metal straps which held the retro pack onto the heat shield was all that was holding the shield and the landing bag behind it in place. The senior engineers decided that it would be too dangerous to drop the retro pack if it was indeed the only thing holding the heat shield in place. It would have to stay attached to the capsule during re-entry. Control phoned Max Faget, the Mercury capsule's lead designer, who was able to confirm that leaving the retro pack in place was their best chance of bringing Glenn back home. The heat of re-entry would eventually burn through the straps and destroy the retro pack, but by that point, it was hoped that the dynamic pressure exerted by the atmosphere on the capsule would hold the shield in place. There was no way of knowing, however, exactly what effect leaving the retro pack on would have during re-entry. To make matters worse, there was also no way of knowing how it would melt and disintegrate. Having pieces of burnt and partially melted metal rattling around on the spacecraft could affect its flight in many different ways. Though, there was yet another concern. If the retro rockets didn't fire properly, and there was any fuel left in the pack, then there would be no choice but to jettison it, as that fuel would inevitably ignite from the heat of friction and explode. Still, it was the best they could do. There wasn't anything Glenn could do from his position, so he was not informed of the full extent of the problem. Instead, word was passed to the tracking stations to remind Glenn to keep the landing bag switched off. This peculiar reminder sparked Glenn's suspicions almost immediately, but he had to focus on piloting the capsule. As he made his second circuit around the Earth, his observations were less numerous as he had to spend quite a bit of time holding the capsule on course, burning through his fuel stocks all the while. As he passed over Australia for the second time, his fuel reserves were down to 62%, and Control advised that he make fewer corrective maneuvers. By the beginning of the third orbit, Wally Shara finally delivered the news to Glenn that he would have to keep the retro rockets attached to the capsule after firing them. But this change to the mission procedures meant that Glenn would have to bypass the automatic systems that would normally control the re-entry sequence and execute them manually. Near the end of the third orbit, four hours and 33 minutes after liftoff, Glenn manually fired the retro rockets. Fortunately, they fired properly, and Glenn left them strapped to the capsule as it started down for the atmosphere. At first contact, Glenn could hear scraping noises on the outside of the capsule, but nothing appeared to be immediately wrong. The capsule began to shake and sway as it was buffeted by the air, and a sheath of ionized atmosphere cut off the capsule from any communications with the ground. For the time being, Glenn was on his own. Eventually, one of the straps on the retro pack seared away, and part of the pack sloughed off the side of the capsule sending an audible bang reverberating through the interior. Part of the severed strap flung back and impacted the window over Glenn's head. It hung there for a few moments before it burned up and vanished. 
As he continued down, more pieces of metal went flashing by the window, conjuring fears that the heat shield itself was disintegrating at an accelerated rate, and that at any moment, the entire capsule would be consumed by the flames. Though, still, there was nothing he could do about it. The capsule began to oscillate wildly as the descent continued, and Glenn burned through the rest of his fuel trying to compensate. When the tanks for both the manual system and the automatic system ran dry, he had no choice but to ride it out the rest of the way. There was no shortage of anxiety at Mercury Control, either. Alan Shepard continued to send messages skyward over the radio, waiting for a response to come through. The re-entry period stretched past four minutes, and still there was no response from Friendship 7. Friendship 7, this is Mercury Control. How do you read? Over. Finally, the radio cracked, and Glenn's voice responded. Loud and clear. How me? Relief washed over the ground station, and Alan Shepard asked through a beaming smile, How are you doing? Glenn said that he was fine, and further commented, That was a real fireball. The capsule splashed down and was picked up by the USS Noah. It banged against the ship's sides a couple of times before it was deposited on the deck, where Glenn called for everyone to keep back before he blew the escape hatch off its side. When he stepped out, he was drenched in sweat, perspiration streaming down his face and dripping from his hair. During his medical exam, it was discovered that Glenn had lost six pounds throughout the duration of the flight, mostly to perspiration. The capsule was also examined upon landing, and it was determined that the heat shield had never been loose. A sensor contact was, which had falsely reported the problem. But even despite the punishment it had received on re-entry, the capsule was in pretty good shape. It made one more circuit around the world after recovery, this time sticking to the ground, as it was taken on a global tour. You can go see it today at the Air and Space Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Naturally, Glenn was welcomed back to Earth as a hero. President Kennedy called him on the USS Noah before he had even returned to the States. But when he finally made landfall, he was greeted with a parade in Washington, as well as another in Cocoa Beach and Cape Canaveral. In Florida, Glenn rode in the back of an open-topped car with his wife Annie, who was clad in a bright red dress and shining white gloves, alongside the Vice President, Lyndon Baines Johnson. In New York City, they declared March 1st John Glenn Day, and on February 23rd, Millions of people turned out to see Glenn as he paraded through their city just as he had done in Washington and Cocoa Beach. The Americans had finally pulled off an orbital mission. John Glenn had faced down death and emerged mostly unscathed. He had scratched his hand while activating the explosive hatch. The Americans had made another leap forward in the space race, but they were still well behind the Soviets. Project Mercury wasn't finished, though. After all, there were still four astronauts who needed to fly into space. When we return, we'll continue marching forward with Project Mercury as NASA prepares to launch a second astronaut into orbit. 
But before another American can take to space, one of the Mercury 7 will receive some devastating news. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and give it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.